Welcome to Bible of the Brews. Deep thoughts fermented over time and text. We're here tonight with Brian Gadawa. Hey guys! It's gonna be a good one. <laughs> and Keith. Hey, how's it going? And of course, Gumby. Hey, what's up? We're gonna be starting tonight off with sibling revelry pecan. It's an American brown ale brewed with candied pecans and brown sugar. Like a pecan pie, this sweet holiday brew has a rich, nutty finish that will warm your spirit this winter. It's an ABV of 7.4 and an IBU of 2.0. And by the way, I'm drinking, I don't have the same beer, but I wanted to kind of, you know, be socially connected. So I'm drinking a New Belgium 1554 Black Lager. Oh, oh, nice. I like that. Sounds amazing. Whatever that is. I'm not a big <laughs> beer drinker, but it's pretty good. I have warm, fuzzy feelings about New Belgium ever since I found some guy's smashed cell phone on the railroad tracks, and I called his friend, and he was bring, coming to break, bring his phone, and he just shows up at my doorstep when New Belgium fat tire, and I'm like, <laughs> this is a good man. <laughs> I, had- I have a suggestion for your listeners. You might want to try this if you haven't already done this. You know, put get a, your put your mug in the freezer, of course, as always, and <laughs> but put the beer in there for a while so it starts to get a little sloshy, and then pour it into the frozen mug, and it turns into like a uh, a um, a beer Slurpee, and it's actually pretty good. <laughs> I am definitely going to try that. <laughs> <laughs> this one, I'm not a warm beer guy, so <laughs> right. <laughs> this one's fairly dark. Yeah. Um, but it has like a caramel type look to it. And it's Is uh it sweet. Um it does have a uh yeah, a little bit. Like a stout. It, it tastes yeah. like a stout. It tastes a bit nutty. Yeah. yeah I it, just really wanted to use that line. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really good. You could definitely taste the pecan. Yes, yes, I do. And this can look so good. I mean, that's just like a quintessential winter color. Right. Like, these should be flying off the shelves if they aren't already. Yeah. Although, it doesn't look like a beer can to me. Maybe I'm not a big beer guy, but it kind of just looked like some kind of a... Yeah, it looks like a some kind of health drink or something. <laughs> hey, let's go with that. Let's, let, let's go with that. It's a health drink. Yeah. <laughs> Fago Blue Pop. Because I'm used to commercial <laughs> beers, you know, like yeah. uh, Coors, Coors and stuff. It, they kind of all looked like beer cans, you know, the, the right. designs or something. I don't know. We'll go with health drink. Yeah. <laughs> this, this one's a bit classy. <laughs> you know, like those um, those seltzer waters, you know, without any sweetener, you know, no, <laughs> no calories and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> so, so, Brian, let's. I would love to catch Keith up right now and any audience members that we have who aren't as familiar with your stories. So let's sure. let's background your stories real quick. Sure. Because we started sure. with that epic series, Chronicles of the Nephilim, which that's really where I started on your books. Yeah. yeah. And the new series is Chronicles of the Watchers. Actually, we did I did a four-book series, Chronicles of the Apocalypse, but now I'm doing Chronicles of the Watchers, and the the whole the premise actually of all those series, they're just sort of different time periods, is uh, based on Genesis six verses one through four, where it talks about it's the weirdest passage in the Bible that talks about the uh, sons of God came. They, these are divine heavenly beings in heaven. Uh, the sons of God came down from heaven, saw the you know women of. The daughters of men were beautiful. They they and they um, married them, had sex with them, and uh, 
they brought forth the Nephilim. And the word Nephilim is, is, a, is a transliterated Hebrew word that means giants. And um, so, and, you know, these aren't giants as in like 20 foot tall, like, you know, <laughs> Hollywood movies, you know. They're like, you know, six feet tall, seven feet tall. You know, Goliath was nine. That's a, probably about the highest, tallest they get. So they were a tall people. And that strain continues on from the flood, even into the days of the conquest of Joshua. And so the Chronicles of the Nephilim, uh, but there's also another element of it. Well, let me finish that. So the Chronicles <laughs> of the Nephilim, I wanted to tell the stories that where giants appeared, but also watchers. And I'll talk about that later. But um but the 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 idea was that there, in the Bible there's this storyline that I think is a lot of Christians have not been taught, and it's very fascinating, and it has to do with what I call the War of the Seed. Mm. What that is is in the Garden of Eden, you know, when the serpent was cursed, God said, "I'll put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, the seed of Eve," and it says that you shall crush his head, he shall bite your bite your heel. Actually, that word for bite your heel is crush. It's the same word as crush your head crush your head, crush your heel. It's kind of interesting, you know, yeah. uh, comparison there. But nonetheless, most scholars will tell you that's the first gospel presentation. That's the first reflection of there's going to be a Messiah. Because, of course, all throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament, it says Messiah will crush the head of the serpent, right? And so that's the mess, first messianic promise. And so the idea here is that, you know, as the Israelites understood in the Old Testament, the, the, the seed of the serpent were those who were the Nephilim in the land of Canaan that they God was giving them Canaan. They had to go in and, you know, wipe out all the Nephilim because they were the seed of the serpent. They were that that strange hybrid creature, you know, that represented the evil, um, the evil unholiness. You know, God was all about separation, separating heaven from earth, male from female, all that kind of stuff, separating Israel from the Gentiles. And so he wanted to cleanse that land of the of the these hybrid creatures. And so I tell the stories throughout the Bible where these giants appear, and I show how they're not just this strange anomaly in the Bible. They're actually they're actually relevant to this storyline. And by the time of King David, uh, David ends up finally finishing off the the last of them. So there were multiple clans uh, in the Bible called the Anakim the Emim, the Zamzumim, and the Rephaim. And Rephaim became a generic phrase that replaced Nephilim. So when you say Rephaim, it's usually referring to basically the giant clans of the land. And, and when David, the Messiah king, the anointed one, right, he was the one that after his imperial rule, you don't hear anything more about the Nephilim in the Bible. But there's another element that I incorporated into that storyline having to do with the Watchers. And the Watchers are basically, in the Bible, there's another storyline that I think a lot of, uh, again, I wasn't taught it. So when I first looked at it, it was wild. And, and I had to really study the Bible, make sure this is there because I wasn't taught it, right? Um, but it's definitely there. And the notion, you know, there are a lot of passages that talk about it. Psalm 82 is a very famous one. Um, but the classic passage I like to refer to is Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 through 10. And there it says, at the Tower of Babel, when God separated the peoples and he confused the languages. So that, remember, remember now, the Tower of Babel, you know, mankind, after the flood, they became sinful, evil again, wanted to deify themselves. And they built this tower, and, and it represented that 
connection to the gods. They were, again, worshiping false gods, deifying themselves. God said, enough. You're going to keep doing this, so I'm going to split you apart so you can no longer unify. So he gave them separated tongues, and he created the nations. And, you know, Genesis uh, 10 talks about the 70 nations that were created as a result of that and their various languages, right? So that's sort of the concept going on there. But Deuteronomy adds this other element to it that says um, that when God did that, what he did was, it says, he allotted the nations according to the sons of God. And I would argue these sons of God are the fallen ones that you read about in Genesis 6. And um, they, so so they're rebellious. They came down to earth. They rebelled against God. And it's like, and, and then God said, but I'm going to allot Israel for myself. So the concept there is that God is like saying to mankind, all right, you're going to worship these false gods, so I'm going to place you in under their authority. You want them? I'll give you to them. And it's sort of like placing them under the authority of mafia bosses, right? <laughs> so you're going to, you're going to, you know, all the Gentile nations have the, are under these, these false gods that have a demonic reality to them. But, but he's, but is Jacob will be my allotted inheritance. So this notion of allotment and inheritance has to do with the land. And that's why the, the ancient world, including Israel, had this concept that there were territorial principalities or, or basically over every earthly authority, there were heavenly authorities connected to them. That's why you read a lot of examples in ancient literature as well as the Bible. You'll read examples where when there's a war on earth between earthly authorities and cities and nations, whatever, there's a war in heaven. And, uh, you know, we read about this more explicitly in Daniel, which I think is chapter 7 or so. No, I'm sorry, I think it's uh, 9 and 10. Anyway, uh, we hear about the Watchers and how there's the Prince of Persia and the Prince of Greece, and Michael, the archangel, is the Prince of Israel. And mo most scholars will tell you that that word prince is not an earthly king, it's re it references the heavenly authorities, Right. So this is why they always thought that, you know, uh, and they also, by the way, connected the stars to the gods and to, so they would represent, you know, when the, when, when a nation was judged or fell to a nation, they would say it's God was defeated. Right. And so I, I thought in my series, what if I thought, you know, what if the ancient, the gods of the ancient world that we read about, you know, you've got, uh, Zeus in Greece, right. You've got in Canaan, in Mesopotamia, Babylon, you've got Marduk. And, and all of these gods and Inanna and stuff. And then in Canaan, you've got Baal, Asherah, Ashtart, Molech, and others, Chemosh. And these were the gods of Canaan that Israel came and was supposed to wipe out the people and get rid of them, but they didn't. They actually ended up worshiping a lot of these other gods. And I said, what if, you know, and I didn't make this up because the Bible actually says in that same Deuteronomy uh, 32 and in Deuteronomy 14, it talks about how there the there's a demonic reality behind the false gods of Canaan. So I but I decided, well, what if what if these ancient gods that we you know that we read about we we assume they made them up, right? Baal and Asherah. What if they were actually there was real spiritual beings behind these real entities behind these these. Uh, identities, right? And may, and what if they were these watchers that were trying to draw men away from men and women from worshiping Yahweh 
to worshiping false gods. That's sort of and think about it. If they are the thor, you know, if you're if you're a watcher, an evil son of God, according to the Bible, and you are over some territory, say of of Canaan. It would make sense that you would cast yourself as a god, as a deity to be worshipped and call yourself Baal, the storm god, right? So that was sort of my premise. And and so I told that story through Chronicles of the Nephilim. And um, Chronicles of the Watchers is my new series, and the first book in it is Jezebel. And the premise was, in Chronicles of the Nephilim, it's kind of like, by the time of David, the uh, Nephilim are gone, right? But the Watchers are not. So the Chronicles of the Watchers series is going to focus, it'll have overlap, of course, but it'll kind of focus on the, these, the Watchers with, and not so much the Nephilim anymore. And, um, and it's going to start with biblical stories, start with Jezebel. Jezebel happens after the time of David, hmm. but I, I'm going to, I'll jump around a little bit. Um, they're not in order, but and then I'm going to go from on from there and hope I hope to tell some biblical stories with these watches, but then blend out into the other nations and maybe tell stories about the British Isles or the Americas, mm. you know, and how these watchers might fit mm. in with those storylines. So that's sort of the premise of Chronicles of the Watchers. Mm. The first book is, of course, Jezebel. Awesome. And my my fans, my readers are telling me it's one of my best yet. So I'm very excited about it. Just released it. You can get it on Amazon. And Jezebel, most people have heard of that name because it's a famous name, but there's a lot of assumptions behind that name that aren't necessarily biblical. But nevertheless, Jezebel tends to represent in our society, you know, the rebellious woman who, you know, who's a slut or, uh, you know, or a feminist. You know, there's a famous feminist uh, leftist website called Jezebel. Uh, that, you know, analyzes news and culture and, and they sort of wear the badge proudly, you know, kind of like, okay, yeah. we're Jezebel, <laughs> screw you, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so that's how people understand it. And of course, the name of my novel is called Jezebel, Harlot Queen of Israel. Hmm. But that that concept, Harlot Queen, and most people think of her as a seductress, right, a sexual seductress. In truth, she really wasn't. And most of the language that you read in the Bible that refers to her in that way, as a harlot or adulteress, it's actually a metaphor, not, it's using the physical world as a metaphor for spiritual unfaithfulness. You see, in the in the Old Testament, Yahweh, uh, or Israel, was supposed to be Yahweh's bride. And he said that all the time, right? You, you are my bride, and you are my wife. And when Israel was unfaithful to Yahweh, he would the prophets would call that call Israel a harlot and a prostitute and a whore and an adulteress, right? <laughs> right. So the concept there is that you're being unfaithful to Yahweh spiritually. And that's what Jezebel is, both in the Old and the New Testament. So it's not really about sexuality. So in my novel, you'll start reading it and you'll actually see, hey, she's actually she's not a she's not that kind of a person. She actually loves Ahab and and uh, the king that she marries and such. And, and so that's one, that's one kind of misnomer about Jezebel that I think uh, will, will be really interesting to read the story. But the other aspect of the story is the context of what, what's going on in the story. So we're in the ninth, ninth, I'm sorry, the ninth century BC, Israel. And this is a time period after Solomon, the divided kingdom, you've got Judah in the south and the capital is Jerusalem with the temple. You've got uh, the Solomon's Temple. Then in the north is Israel, 
and its capital is Samaria. And I'm focusing on that story in Samaria, in Israel. And what happens is um, Israel is is at war with Arab, Aramea, the Arameans up north, which is rooted in Damascus. And so what happens is Israel decides if we team up, if we ally with Tyre or Phoenicia, which is on the coast, then we can protect uh, trade and, and balance and fight against the Arameans. Because what happens is Israel protected the king's highway. The king's highway was the major economic route that connected Mesopotamia and Syria in the north with Egypt in the south. So all those nations in between used it for trade. Israel protected that because it went through Israel. And then on the coast, which had to do with sea trading for all the other nations, Tyre basically controlled that. So together they controlled and protected the economic uh, you know, wealth of the region. And, and that's what, and so of course, in order to, to establish that allies, those that unity, they engaged in, in marriage, kind of like Game of Thrones, right? You know, you do the marriage in order to, uh, to bring out the peace and the unity. So Jezebel was actually a daughter of the king of Tyre, and she marries King Ahab of Israel. And of course, when she does, this is, uh, this is not good to the prophets of Yahweh. And uh, particularly, Elijah was the first major prophet, and he was during this time period. And what happened was, of course, Israel was supposed to be worshiping Yahweh as their only God. But by this time period, Israelites were worshiping all kinds of false gods, Asherah, Ashtart, Molech. And um, uh, Jezebel brought Baal worship to Israel, so much so that she ended up building a temple to Baal in Samaria, which is just the most shocking thing to be able to do, right? But the point is, is that Israel was so corrupted that they were all worshiping many gods. In fact, archaeology shows us that the common Israelite worshiped many gods and goddesses. And uh, in fact, we found, uh, they found little things that talk about, they believe that Yahweh had an escort, uh, had a, uh, what do they call it, an escort or... Um, uh, concubine? Yeah, Yahweh... What? Like a concubine? Yeah, like a concubine in, in the goddess Asherah. And so a lot of Israelites believe that Yahweh had a escort of, of Asherah. And uh, this was very common. So to accept Baal worship was not all that dramatic, but it, it obviously marked a distinct thing because Baal was the storm god of Canaan. He was the supreme he was called the Most High, so to, to bring him in was sort of to challenge the Most High of, of Yahweh, and that was really extreme. And so now that's where we get this, this rivalry between Jezebel and Elijah, the prophet of Yahweh. And that's, um, that's only one of, the, excuse me, one of the stories that I tell in Jezebel where, you know, many people have heard of that Mount Carmel episode where Jez, uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal have a contest whose God will draw or whose priests will draw fire from heaven to burn up the sacrifice. That is the God who reigns, right? So that's that famous incident on Mount Carmel. And I have that, of course, in the novel. But what I do is I tell that story of Jezebel and then Elijah. And when Elijah rises up and starts preaching against it, he causes trouble because Ahab 
is actually a compromiser. He's a corrupt king. He actually worships Yahweh, but he just, and and let's worship Baal too. You know, it's not this sort of like he's an evil, wicked king. He's more like us than you realize. You know, he's, he's not so like, oh, I worship a different God. No, he's like, yeah, I worship Yahweh. And and Baal and Asherah, why not? We need all the help we can get, that kind of a thing. So it's all, it's about <laughs> corruption. It's about compromise. And um, But the story I tell, you'd think it would be Elijah versus Jezebel, but Elijah is more like a mentor. He's like the Obi-Wan Kenobi because the true protagonist of this story is Jehu. And so Jehu was the, was the commander of the armies of Ahab. So he had a lot of power, but he was a Yahweh worshiper. But he also struggled with compromise because he saw this happening throughout. And meanwhile, he's he's supporting this king. So imagine if you're this guy, I worship Yahweh, but I also believe the king is God's anointed one, right? Because that's what the scripture says. So like David said, I will not touch the anointed, right? I won't hurt the king, even if the king does wrong. Well, that's what Jehu has. But what happens when the king is becoming so corrupt that he's drawing all of Israel away from them? And so Jehu struggles with this. Until the end of the story, which most people, if you know, familiar with the story, you know that Jehu is the one who ends up facing Jezebel, killing her, and becoming the new king of Israel. He gets rid of Baal worship in 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 Israel. Now, maybe that's spoiling the story, but I'm assuming that you know, <laughs> I, I'm assuming that it, it shouldn't spoil the story because it's still so fascinating. But that's sort of the that's sort of the big story of what I'm telling. And um, but there's a lot of details about that time period that should shock a lot of even Christians that are not aware of what was going on in that time period. And um, so that's the story I'm telling, but also bring in that watchers paradigm. So the gods Baal, Asherah, Ashtart and others are actually real beings that are in my story and I'm weaving them in. So you see a story that's going on with them and how it intersects and connects with the earthly human story, not in this extreme way, you know, like demons of lust and demons of, you know, of fear. I don't have that kind of a thing. It's more like these are high principalities. And I depict, you know, one of the things that that strikes me is that a lot of, of villains, when it comes to, you know, demonic stories about demons and stuff like that, they tend to be depicted, whether it's movies or books, they tend to be depicted as sort of, you know, this army unified in rebellion. They're like, they've got perfect unity, you know, in their fight <laughs> against goodness. But I'm like, no, I don't think so. They're created beings, so they have flaws, they have personalities. They're not like robots. And I picture them more like, you know, earthly authorities, kind of like the mafia. You know, in the mafia, sure, they're unified in one sense that they're supporting that one unified king, but they're jockeying for power and betraying one another, right? Oh, and yeah. Sometimes they even want to betray the godfather to take over his place. Well, I had that kind of storytelling in, in Jezebel with Baal, Asherah, and Anat, and, and all these gods. And ba Baal's the storm god of Canaan. He's the high god, so they're trying to take over his power. The goddesses are trying to overthrow him, that type of a thing. And so I end up drawing from the Canaanite mythology and using that in the storyline. So it's not just arbitrarily made up. It's actually sort of dealing with the ancient storytelling of Canaan and uh, sort of uh, submitting it or subverting it under the paradigm of the Judeo-Christian worldview, if that makes sense. So that's sort of what I'm what I'm doing with in the story. And um, yeah. I like that. That's great. So you have the uh, the Watcher carryover from the Nephilim series, then, right? Yes. 
<laughs> and the same watchers that appear, Bale appears in previous Nephilim stories. So I try to be consistent. That's why, really, in a sense, all the series are linked <clears throat> and connected. So uh, the, now the Chronicles of the Watchers, you can you can read those out of, you, you know, you don't have to read them. Um, what is it? Uh, they're standalone novels. You know, you don't have to read them in sequence necessarily. Okay. But if you do, if you want to, it it provide it does provide a, an extra special storyline that's arcing through all the series from Nephilim to Watchers to Apocalypse. They're all connected, and that's what's kind of so. It's like one universe, but sort of if you want to explore separate world, separate you know parts of that. And the second novel is already available. Um, we don't have to talk about it in detail, but the second novel of Chronicles of the Watchers is already available. It's called Chin, Dragon Emperor of China. Oh, and it, oh. yeah, this is uh, now this, it, it's it's actually hmm. uh, an old book that I wrote when I started the series, but I rebooted the series and I retitled it. And I put it in in different order. And Chin, Dragon King of Emperor, that's what I told you about where I want to expand to other countries. And so this tells about the story of China and the first emperor. And it's based on history, but I also weave in the watcher motif and and link it to the Bible and the, you know, the Magi from Babylon, which are connected to Daniel and, you know, that kind of a thing. So it's a fascinating story, a historical fantasy type story of the first emperor of China. And the first emperor of China was a fascinating tyrant. Even, even the people, Chinese love to tell his story as a, a great villain because he, 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 was, he, he actually sought eternal life. So he's looking for the elixir of eternal life. Mm -hmm. So he's a quite fascinating guy, but he was also a brutal tyrant that brutalized his own people. Yeah, as, as many of the tyrants were. <laughs> That's very fascinating. As all tyrants yeah. are. <laughs> So that in in do you incorporate? Because I know that I, I read I did some background reading on uh, on Shangdi, and are you bringing those motifs into it? Yes, Shangdi is. I believe actually, that's something I did in the research on Chin. Well, one reason I wrote it, I wrote it with Charlie Wen, who is Charlie is a um, was the uh, he was one of the uh, creators of the visual effect, not visual effects, I'm sorry, the visual development of Marvel Studios. So oh. he actually developed a lot of the visual images of the original characters. He's no longer with Marvel, but the, the in the, you know, from the first of the series till recently. Um, so he and I wrote that story together and we were both, the reason why we wrote it was because in our personal research, we have found things like the Chinese did research and have, have, have claimed that the Chinese language um, the Chinese language is still relatively pictorial. So, you know, most, le most, pretty much all languages, all civilized languages on the face of the earth are now um, very abstract. So they use symbols to represent letters and such. But most languages, you know, you go back in ancient history to the hieroglyphs of Egypt, et cetera, it was very pictorial. And Chinese language had remained pictorial for much longer. And so it was a pictograph. So each little image, uh, each little word was like an image. And there's research that sh shows that the vestiges of the Genesis stories, you know, Genesis 1 to 3 to all the way to 11 and, and on, that there are vestiges of Genesis in the pictorial nature of the language of China. And there's no wow. way that they could. And think about it, though, China is separated from all the other nations, so they didn't get the Bible. Is the point? But the principle, 
the the principle is, or the the you know the claim is that at the Tower of Babel, when everyone spread upon the earth, the Chinese spread and went to China, and they brought with them those stories that they knew about Yahweh. Uh, that the Bible ended up recording later, but they brought those with them, and they real they remained relatively, or let's say this, they remained less corrupted than other nations, right? You know, you've got these other nations that just rejected Yahweh, and they they just you know created all these gods. But interestingly, China kept the notion of the Creator God as Shangdi or Shangti, and they even got to the point where they had altars, and. Of all the nations on the earth, they were the other than Israel. China was the only ancient China was the only nation or country whose worship of the god Shangdi involved no images. They had no images of 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 Shangdi, hmm. and that matches Israel. God said, "You shall have no images of me, because that's idolatrous." Every other nation has images except it, except China and Israel. And there's so a lot of other correlations, but, but I got off topic because I was saying that the language, and if you look at the language, for example, one of the famous examples of, of the influence of Genesis on the Chinese language is that the word for boat, if you look at the hieroglyph or the pictograph, you follow it back to its more ancient roots, you see it's a picture of a boat with eight people in it. Oh. Now there's... There's one story in history that has eight people in a boat, huh. and that's Noah. <laughs> Noah and his family were eight surviving. So there's a lot of examples wow. like that that you could not have gotten because they were they didn't have contact with the Bible. So right. it's kind of interesting. And there's a lot of, like the word for tower refers to Babel and all this. So anyway, I and then the other element was that the dragon had always been a element of Chinese, um, you know, obviously Chinese culture and, and history and such. And, but the first emperor of China was a very sort of a change happened, you know, and he's, that was when it became a sort of, Oh, the dragon became a sort of permanent emblem of the emperor. You know, he, they had been attributed to the emperors and stuff before, but he, it sort of became more official. And, um, and the, the dragon in Eastern Chinese mythology is different than Western. In Western, we've, it, it, their uh, dragons are like dinosaurs who breathe fire. But in China, they're more like water snakes, you know, that kind of a thing. So there's a lot of differences, but there's a lot of connections and similarities. And in fact, uh, you know, Christian Chinese argue that the dragon is connected to Satan. And so it, mm. he was made positive by the Chinese culture. And particularly... It, had done so at the time of this first emperor. So we, we make a lot of those connections in that storyline. And uh, I, I guess I broke my promise of, of talking too much about Chin, but <laughs> nevertheless, yeah, these are both, these are the first two books in the series Chronicles of the Watchers. So you can start with either one. They, they're not in order. And um, I'm sure you'll find it fascinating because I, all my books, I do intensive historical research and mythological research. So I try to weave my fiction based on the mythology and the history and all that. And um, so that you can learn about about it while you're also being entertained. I think you cover some of that research in the spiritual world of ancient China and the Bible. Right? So yes, yeah, so so there's a companion book. If you buy Jezebel, you can uh, write it. You can uh, uh, follow a link in the book to get a free copy of a companion book called. Thank you for mentioning that. Called the Spiritual World of Jezebel and Elijah. So what happened was when I did um, the Nephilim series, I, I, I knew that 
I knew that Christians and you know Bible believers at least would be my dominant audience, obviously, because I'm retelling Bible stories. And I knew that they tend to be, you know, they have a high view of scripture and, you know, it's they it's the word of God. And I believe it is too. But my point is, is that I know that they don't like tampering with that. And so I, since I was weaving in a lot of fiction, I felt, you know what, but the fiction was based on research. So I said, I, I can understand if they're, if, if they start to think, uh-oh, you're tampering with the word of God. But if I could show them my research and what it was all based on, I think that they would they would understand what I'm doing and appreciate it. And so I wrote appendices after each novel. And sure enough, they loved it. A lot of them got so became so in love with them, they would say, I love the appendices as much as the novel. So I ended up putting all the, all the appendices in Chronicles of Nephilim into one book called When Giants Were Upon the Earth. You could also get that on Amazon, but um, because it's all the biblical research. For, so for those who want the hard research, who like that, you know, that's available to them. And so that's what the spiritual world of Jezebel and Elijah is, the biblical and historical research that the novel's based on. And it's 150 pages, so it's as big as, a, it's as a size of a normal book. Um, or you can buy it in paperback on Amazon. But So I go into all these, these things that are really shocking, and, and I was shocked by the research myself. You know, one of the most dramatic things that struck me was I had always had this notion that, you know, Israel was monotheistic, and they occasionally had lapses into polytheism, right? You know, they worshiped other gods and then they'd get slapped and they'd come back to God. And I sort of <laughs> pictured it through my own modern paradigm of the of the Christian church. You know how like as Christians, we have yeah. a besetting sin, maybe. Maybe it's alcoholism, maybe it's pornography, whatever. And maybe you'll fall and you'll go back into it and then you'll ah, you'll repent and come back and get out of it. And that's kind of how I saw Israel with polytheism. But as I studied archaeology and the Bible more deeply, I found out, no, it's actually the opposite. It's more that Israel was a polytheistic worshippers who occasionally had lapses into monotheism. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and so in this time period of Jezebel, you know, from the time Solomon built the temple of Yahweh, the most holy temple, right, until it was destroyed like 550, 70 years later, whatever, no, I'm sorry, um, whatever, about 300 years later. You'd think that at least the priests of the temple of Yahweh would would they would worship God even if the people were not. But when you read the Bible, you find out no, they didn't even follow Yahweh purely either, because there was an Asherah pole in the temple for two over two hundred years of that three hundred years that the temple was in existence. Now mm. an Asherah pole is kind of like a totem pole, you know. And they don't know exactly what it looked like, but it's probably wood, and it probably was a symbol of the tree of a tree of life, which was represented by Asherah, the god, the mother goddess of Canaan, and and uh, the Asherah pole was always next to the altar, with Baal, and in Yahweh places they in, in the Yahweh's temple they had an Asherah pole by the temple of by the altar of Yahweh. This is like idolatrous in the in the supreme, right? So you realize that even the priesthood was so corrupted. Everybody was so corrupted. They were just polytheists. Really, it's the only people who weren't were the prophets. And I, <laughs> I, I came I, yeah, I got a new, I've always respected the prophets. But now I see like they were really the only ones following Yahweh purely. And, uh, and, and that's a really, it was a shocking reality. And you, and you look in archaeology and you see this because... 
in Israelite settlements, there's tons of these little goddesses and stuff. They worshiped goddesses. So hmm. I tried to depict in Jezebel, what was life like in Israel with all these Israelites worshiping? It's not like they worship Yahweh or the God. No, they just said, yeah, we worship Yahweh and the gods and goddesses. And I tried to depict the world, what it would be like if, if you've got people who are worshiping Yahweh and all these other gods. It would be a normal part of their life. It wasn't shocking to them, right? And it might be shocking to us as we see, wow, really, they were like that? And that's sort of a fascinating element of the novel that I think will, will be fascinating to people, you know? Yeah. 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 And, yeah. There, and you, you even see it in the Bible. I mean, you have certain um, yeah. certain people who are the fathers of patriarchs who are actually making idols. <laughs> yes. 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 Absolutely. And it's it's pretty shocking. I mean, think about this. Aaron, you know. All right. So here's another element. Um, so even though I have a high respect for the, the, the prophets, Elijah in my story was something, a, a character that I had to wrestle with as I was telling the story and researching him, because there's always there's a couple things about Elijah that was always confused me. One of them was hmm. here you have Elijah, the prophet who's just about the only one left, at least he feels that, um, speaking for Yahweh, he confronts 400 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. The God who calls, the God who answers with fire from heaven and burns up the sacrifice, he is God. That's a, that's guts, man, to go up there and say, okay, I'll tell you what, we'll both call upon our gods and whoever calls down fire from heaven, that's the real God. I mean, I don't even, you know, I don't, it'd be tough to do something like that. So, <laughs> Take a lot of faith, right? Oh, yeah. Right. So he gets up there. He does that. It, it happens. And he has the <clears throat> 400 prophets of Baal slaughtered. And Ahab sort of goes, oh, wow, I've been wrong. You know, Ahab has a moment where he repents and turns back to Yahweh. <laughs> but then right after that, Jezebel confronts Elijah, not even in person. She just sends a letter. And it says, if, if you're not dead like my prophets by tomorrow or whatever, then my name isn't Jezebel. <laughs> And what does Elijah do? He runs away. He huh. runs away for 40 days and four nights. And you're like going, why would you do that? You just won the biggest. Why would you be afraid of her? You just won the biggest, you know, like contest you can imagine. Your God, you know, your God, you know, winning the contest. And it was always confusing to me. And you know what? As I studied, I came around, you know, in a way that's a blessing because in a way that shows how human and how relatable Elijah is to us. Because we look at that and we think, well, I could never do that. I could never call fire from heaven, right? So, right. so he must have, he had the power of God and experience of God in a way I could never have. Yet even he, after doing that, was fearful. So when we look at our lives and think, wow, I'm, you know, I'm pathetic, I, I, I pray or whatever, you know, I, I may have a good relationship with God and then I and then I become fearful in some case. I feel like a hypocrite. I feel like a failure. You know what I mean? I mean, I have these all the time in my life. And I would look at Elijah and think, well, I can't relate to him, right? But in truth, I can because, look, Brian, even someone who had the power of God like you'll never experience, even he would end up being fearful right after it and run away. So you can draw, you can look at Elijah and realize he's human just like you. And he's acting just like you. So I, I think actually, I came to the conclusion, I think Elijah struggled with the fear of man in his life. And mm. so even though God, Yahweh used him in a mighty way, he was struggling with the fear of man. Mm. And in that sense, it makes it very, um, very relatable, you know what I mean? Uh, in a yeah. way that I didn't realize. Another element of Elijah that sort of shocked me was, or not shocked me, but just sort of like, oh, very interesting 
twist on something I did never understood, or let's put it this way, I had a misunderstanding of. Yeah, so first of all, yeah, Elijah runs away from Jezebel, but where does he go? He doesn't just run away, he runs to Mount Horeb in the south, which is Mount Sinai. Mm. It's the holy mountain of Yahweh where he revealed the law. That was where God's presence was. So the encouragement there is, you don't, you know, you don't, if you're running away from something, it's okay, so long as you're running to God, you're running towards Yahweh. That's where you'll get your strength to, re, to you know, to renew your courage, right? That was encouraging. But also when he gets there, you have another famous story that some people are familiar with, and where, you know, he, he uh, sitting there on the mountain, and God does all these, or there are these massive displays of natural power, like, there's an earthquake, you know? And and Yao and Elijah says, but Yahweh was not in the earthquake. You're like, what? Then there's this massive pillar of fire, kind of like the one pillar of fire that guided Moses, right? Yep. But he says, but Yahweh was not in the fire. And then there's like some massive storm and wind, and God's not in the storm. And you're like, well, what's the point? And and then it says, you know, oh, but he heard a still small voice, and Yahweh was in that, you know. And the common uh, interpretation of that is. Oh, see, you know, God speaks to us in our hearts and in our feelings in a still small voice. That that Hebrew word that's translated still small voice in English is a bad translation. It actually is it's an oxymoron, and the scholarship will tell you it's like saying God is in the sound of silence. It's like an oxymoron, the sound of silence. Hmm. So it's not saying that he's speaking in a whisper, it's saying that it's silence. Huh. But God's in it. And you're like, now I begin to understand a little bit, you know, I'm not a mystic, but I think one of the elements of the mysticism that mystics have, have argued for is this notion of finding God in his absence. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, that would always be kind of weird and contradicted, but I think I now understand that better in this sense, because, you know, when you have those periods in life and the older you get, the more you have them, experience them of God's silence or God's presence. You know, you don't, I'm not saying God's not there or, he, you know, but we certainly don't feel him. We certainly don't sense he's there. And sometimes it's for long periods, you know, it's dry spells, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, you know, you struggle with this stuff and it's not about, well, just keep praying, keep, you know, looking, you know, whatever, keep consistent. And then the Lord will be there at the end with a miracle or some exciting experience, you know, no, it's God is in the silence. In other words, that emptiness, that absence that you're experiencing is the very thing that draws you toward God, that pulls you, that makes you go, God, where are you? And cry out. And it's that crying out that you're where you're finding God in, in the absence, in the silence. It's not a promise that he'll be there with some experience at the end. It's no, that longing for and an engaging in that longing for God is where his presence can be. And that was sort of, you know, and and I do think there's a point being made there by God saying, look, Elijah's going to experience a lot of these big miracles. So God definitely does that when he wants to, but that's not really the point. Because the point is, is God is not about these spectacles, you yeah. know, because after all, look what happens. People see the spectacle of the Red Sea closing in on their enemies. And what do they do like right after that? They build a golden calf. <laughs> so it's like, you know what I mean? So it's like these spectacles and these miracles, Christians and religious people are looking for all these, you know, experiences and spectacles. And it's like, you're just, you're, 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 um, 
I don't know what the word is, but you're 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 pursuing the wrong path. You're thinking that's where you're going to find God by experience, but it's like no, because you can have those experiences and then you turn right around and you you behave in a sinful way anyway, because that's not where God is. God is not in the experiences. God is in in who he is and even in the silence even is in his absence. So I don't want to be sound too mystical there but <laughs> but definitely that's sort of one of the as I'm writing the story I'm I'm like realizing this and so I felt like trying to capture and express that truth that spiritual truth theological yeah. truth whatever you want to call it uh I think a story a narrative like that can capture it in a way that theology just can't. You know, you can abstractly mm. explain this, even like my explanation to you right now. But the truth is, you you read that story, you 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 th- you see it and you experience it existentially, so to speak, dramatically through mm-hmm. through Elijah and such. And I think it starts to make better sense than sometimes theology can make it. You know, yeah, or abstract theology. I agree. I agree. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. it's funny you say that too because it's um. It was uh, it was Mother Teresa who said that uh, it was actually the loneliness that drove her so much in her life because she had the initial experience of God speaking to her, but then it was his silence through most of her life that made her the iconic person that she was. Yeah, and you know, mm. I think her diary had come out and it showed how she had struggled with faith and doubt and God, and some you know secular people were like, "Oh, look, see." Even Mother Teresa, like, sometimes she didn't even think she was a believer. Ha <laughs> ha! Right. It's like, no, you fools, you don't get it. It's like, that's part <laughs> of what faith is, and and that's part of the experience of God is that absence, that longing, that alienation, that <laughs> that hunger. Uh, that's where God is. God is in the hunger, you know? Yeah, but they wouldn't yeah. understand that because, yeah, you know. Yeah. Secular mind can't well, understand even Even like from that. an evangelical's point of view, I think I'm the only one here, right? Only... Yep, that'd be great. <laughs> uh, you know, to, to be able to find God outside of theology and scripture, I mean, that's that's treading on dangerous territory. It, you know, yeah, it feels like you're going to pull that carpet from under under underneath us. You know, and if we got nowhere <laughs> safe to land, so yeah, yeah. Well, look, I'm because I, I come from an evangelical background too. So, and then that's definitely I'm reformed, and that's my. That's my tradition, and and um, you know it's not without I'm not without my disagreements with my tradition, but but um, uh, I do think though that um, the the principle this biblical principle is that there is oh getting a new beer for the for the break for the break, um, <laughs> but the principle is is that uh, God's and this is in the Bible too, anyway, is that what does God always tell his people? You know, it's like, remember, remember, <clears throat> he tells them, make these, make these, uh, um, these massabot or these standing stones as a memory of my deliverance to you. Mm-hmm. So it's all about remembering what I did in the past. And that's what the word of God is. It's that recording of what God has d- done, delivered you in the past. So relying upon the Word of God as your foundation, I, I still have that as my evangelical principle. So no experience or lack thereof uh, would be my defining trait of who God is or yeah. what He's like, yeah. uh, unless it's consistent with and in line with the previous you know revelation that we have of Him. Mm-hmm. And that's how I see it, you know. But yeah, I, I realize there are other 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 pathways that I, I may have disagreements with, but. Um, I still think that, you know, all the traditions of Christianity still have that respect for the word of God 
mm-hmm. no matter what they're saying, you know. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. For the Bible. That's and that's yeah. that's why we enjoy the podcast so much because we have I I think just about everybody represented. Yeah. You know, we've got oh, cool. Yeah, we've got, you know, uh Gumby, Mike, Steve, they're they're all on the evangelical side. Uh I'm the Catholic. Steve uh, uh Keith is 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 Catholic. So um so we have a mix of different uh Christian viewpoints. That's what I think we really enjoy about it. I got a second that the oh the you know, just having fiction that has that scriptural foundation has really been it's actually been a big blessing to me. I, I've actually I'm somehow was until today unfamiliar with your work, Brian. Uh once um, Juice told me about it. I was like, you know, diving into your previous podcast on here, and I, I started reading. Um, what was the second book in the the Chronicles of Nephilim series? Enoch, Enoch Primordial. Enoch Primordial. Um, yeah. I was getting kind of shades. Um, it was taking back a couple of years ago when we were doing this this ninety. Actually, I think we did a hundred and twenty day fast, and we weren't supposed to read anything but spiritual reading. And I was like, this is gonna kill me. So immediately, I'm I'm finding all sorts of. Um, spiritual fiction, because I'm like, I can't just read theology. It's going to kill me. Yeah, yeah. And um, I, just reading the first few pages of Enoch Primordial, I, I know they're definitely, from your description, two very different types of books, but it was tickling the same parts of my brain as C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, where it's taking a familiar foundation, a familiar framework, and like importing something just a little bit different into it that takes you just to a totally different space. You know, he takes you to space, you take us in front of the watchers. And I think it's just a really great, like, it's just, it's that change of perspective. I think that's just yeah. super refreshing and can make you see your, you know, the same faith maybe you've had in a completely different light. So yeah, has really been really cool pumped up to, to read more. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great to hear. Thank you. You know, for me, I'm kind of a straight, I'm an oddity in that I am a bipolar in terms of I'm a right brain and left brainer. You know, I love theology. I love philosophy and abstraction. I really do. In fact, in some ways, that's the stuff I'm always, you know, if I want to like, what, what do I want to read? I'm always drawn towards something like that. But, um, but of course, I also love movies and I'd rather watch a movie sometimes than read a book. Right. <laughs> but so, I, but I also love storytelling. And when I look at my life and I look, look at things that affect me the most, and, you know, I kind of see it as a, you know, abstract theology as an intellectual element. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's intellectual is part of how God created us. And it's part of the fullness mm-hmm. of faith. But so is the, you know, some Christians have called the heart. I, I don't, you know, the whole dichotomy of head and heart. I don't know. Maybe that is real. But I think what they're trying to express is the emotions and the sort of the human experience versus just the mental abstraction, the concrete humanity. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I see that there is that sort of difference. And I have love of both of those. But I also realize, though, that, you know what? The things that change my life uh, the, in some ways the most are are these are stories, you know? And I, I talk about how, you know, honestly, some movies and TV series have have changed my life more than sermons ever have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. of course, that's the danger of them if they're not biblical. But nonetheless, you know, um, yeah, I, I've had to say that like this, the, the TV series, This Is Us, you know, it's not Christian at all. It's, you know, it's pretty typically secular. But the whole concept of really looking into your family and how your family has affected you, I'm telling you that that like yeah. opened my eyes to something I had never dealt with in my entire life. And <laughs> no sermon has ever done that for me. And quite frankly, no book has either, you know. And some people relate to, to, you know, theology and some people relate to story. But I think most people, I think a lot of people do have a hard time with reading the abstract theology stuff. 
And that, so my goal is, since I love them both, like, well, why don't I put them both together so that both sides could get something out of it, you know? So, <laughs> mm -hmm. so the people who can't handle reading deep theology, I write, I, listen, I, I, in, in, I incarnate theology into my narrative. So I call my novels narrative theology. So you can get a theological, uh, 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 learning through my novels, it just won't be, you know, systematic, but it'll it'll be there. Yeah. But also for theologians, you know, if they want to see theology from a different perspective, a fresh perspective of dramatic narrative, you can learn things that you can't learn from the abstract. So it's a both and definitely for me. I'm not one of those people that says, you know, oh, you're the postmodern. I'm not postmodern. I'm postmodern in the sense of I've definitely... Uh, I don't rely only on the, or let's put it this way, I'm not a modernist Christian that, that tends to only re respect the intellect and not the emotions, but I'm not a postmodern in that. I don't reject the reason and jump over the emotions, you know, mm -hmm. I, it's both and, and that's what, that's the goal of all my storytelling is both and, because I love entertaining, you know, I love entertainment. <laughs> and my goal is when I, my choices of stories are, this is what I say, it's, equally important if a story i'm going to tell is not equally entertaining as is it is theological i won't tell it because to me the, the incarnation of christ is both word and and flesh right he's both human existential narrative and abstract logos right so Ooh, so point. that's my goal in all my storytelling and approaching is uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm not going to just tell a story just to be entertaining, but I'm also not going to tell a story just to, to teach some theology. That's, that's pedantic. Join us for the rest of the conversation in part two.